0: Playing right field, number 21, Roberto Clemente.
1: Welcome, everyone, to our season two premiere. I'm Danny Torres, host of the Talking 21 podcast, part of the Our Esquina podcast network. But before we dive into season two, let's look back at season one. So many memorable moments, whether it was episode one with Phil Dorsey, whose late father was Clemente's closest friend in Pittsburgh. My dad met Roberto in 1955, shortly after he came up from the minor leagues. And my dad was Roberto's entree into Pittsburgh and you know, the black neighborhood that was there to support him. There was still segregation going on in the city. So you know he had to go to places that accepted him. Or how about our father and son guests, Tom and Neil Walker, from Episode 9? Tom recounted Clemente's last words to him while he helped his friend to pack food and medical supplies. Clemente wanted him to stay behind and not fly in what would be an ill-fated New Year's Eve trip to Nicaragua. I told him, I said, Roberto, I want to go with you. Uh, I don't have anything to do tonight. I want to go to Nicaragua and uh, unload the plane. We'll be back, you know. Da 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 da. He said, Gringo, party, truja. bombano, and uh, I went. Oh man, I don't, I don't really want to leave. So I went back. I got in my car. Said goodbye to him, and uh, you know, it was uh, moments I'll never forget. People were are. are are finally understanding the impact that this man had on the game, not just the game of baseball, but the humanitarian side, the the philanthropic side. And I think it's just a matter of time. And I hope it's this year. And if it's not this year, I hope it's the following year. I hope that finally the number 21 will be completely retired. And finally, if you are a true Clemente fan, you'll enjoy our episode 10 guests, Luis Rodriguez Mayoral. Our relationship started when I was very young, maybe 18, 19, and he impacted me in a way where our common denominator as to a friendship brotherhood was not baseball. It was him explaining to me what he felt towards the needy. I knew right there and then that he was a cat kind of a different breed. He was genuine. He was serious about anything he did in life because he felt the pride that he had to be an example for other persons, particularly Latinos in the US of A trying to make that transition. When our team embarked on this project, it was with the goal of collecting as many first-person accounts of those who were in Roberto Clemente's orbit. Their stories will forever be available in our Talking 21 archive so that future generations of listeners can hear stories about this iconic Puerto Rican who transcended the game of baseball. But now, on the eve of the 2021 championship season, we dust off our headsets and microphones to bring you season two of the Talking 21 podcast. Welcome, bienvenidos, the Talking
0: 21 podcast. When Martin Luther King started doing what he did, he changed the whole system
1: the official podcast dedicated to the extraordinary life. When I was a little kid, uh, I want to, to be a, a baseball player. I, this is
0: something that I, I, I think about. The more I think about it, I convinced that God want me to play baseball.
1: Of the legendary 21, Roberto Clemente Walker. For many baseball enthusiasts, there will always be an everlasting bond with the voices in the booth. From the early days of radio, to the emergence of TV broadcasts, to now, the streaming of mobile devices.
0: Bayerga is 0 for 3. Left center field. Grissom, on the run, the team of the 90s has its world championship.
1: There will always be that affinity for that singular sports broadcaster who fans look forward to seeing and hearing on their handheld devices and flat screen TVs. And I'm sure our leadoff hitter for season two is a voice many fans look forward to
0: hearing a pop in the shadow left the new york yankees world champions team of the decade most successful franchise of the century
1: throughout his 40 plus year career bob costas has enjoyed a stellar journey in the broadcast booth as the old adage goes he has seen it all Bob Costas is a 28-time Emmy Award winner and a 2018 Ford C. Frick Award recipient.
0: But for me, baseball has always come first. And so, this day and this honor will always come first too. Thank you all very much.
1: (laughs) Bob Costas is truly one for the ages. The beauty of every broadcaster is knowing what to say at any given moment. During game six of the 2000 ALCS playoffs, the New York Yankees were about to advance to another World Series. Listen to his effortless delivery of the historic
0: final out. A slow roller, but Martinez doesn't run well. Jeter up with it. Start spreading the news. New York, New York.
1: Costas has been covering the game for a long time. He, more than anyone else, is cognizant on the changing demographics of players entering the league. Who more and more resemble the players of the Negro Leagues and Latin American countries around the globe? He was the perfect choice to discuss baseball today, and of course, his thoughts on the great Roberto Clemente. But first, I wanted to make sure I wasn't getting fooled the same way some of my esteemed colleagues in the media were when last year, a familiar sports personality was trending on social media. Is that there's
0: somebody on Twitter and it could be Bob at real underscore Bob Costas. Then you read the Twitter bio and <laughs>
1: doesn't sound like Bob. Please, Bob, could you kindly assure my listeners this is the real Bob Costas and not that fake individual on Twitter?
0: Yeah, you would never find Bob Costas on Twitter in the past, present, or future. Although someone purporting to be Bob Costas apparently got out there and enough people were gullible enough that, I don't know, 20, 30,000 people in the space of a few hours decided they were going to follow this joker Uh, and an included, and I won't name them and shame them, included some members of the media who should have been (laughs) a little bit more skeptical of all of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But my son who works at the major league baseball network uh, quickly shot it down and really Really? identifying it as a bogus account and a few laughs were had by everybody, so I guess no harm done, but this is, you have the real Bob Costas, not the focus <laughs> Twitter, Bob Costas on your podcast.
1: Well, Bob, I'm, I'm appreciative that you clarified that for my listeners, because now we can begin with this podcast. I've always been fascinated to hear from our guests their own personal connection to this beloved sport. And a question that I routinely ask has been, who introduced them to the game of baseball? But I realized I've never shared mine on this podcast. So before I asked Bob Costas about how he fell in love with the game, I shared a little story of my own. I grew up, Bob, in the South Bronx, but basically was raised to root for the New York Mets. When my late father arrived in the USA from Puerto Rico in the early 1950s, the Yankees had in the minors a black Puerto Rican by the name of Vic Power. But on the island, he was known as Victor Peyo. He was a flamboyant player, extremely talented. It was something about that he didn't fit the Yankee way. He was traded to the Philadelphia Athletics. My dad, Bob, was furious and stated emphatically, we will never cheer for the Yankees. So Bob, if you and I were able to step into a time machine and we bump into a a young Bob Costas watching a game at a ballpark, how can you describe that scene?
0: Well, when I first became familiar with baseball, it's the late 1950s. So I'm listening to Mel Allen on the radio. Against the visiting Washington Senators, Rick Barber, who had been best known as the voice of the Brooklyn Dodgers, but by then had gone to the Yankees. And here's what's important to remember. The Dodgers and Giants both leave after the 1957 season for the West Coast, and the Mets don't come into existence until 1962. So people ask me, why did you grow up a Yankee fan? Because when I first truly became aware of baseball, the Yankees not only were the only team in New York. But a great many of their games, unlike most teams in that era, a great many of their games were on television. Of course, all of their games were on radio, and they were the premier team in all of baseball in the World Series almost every year. Hall of Famers dotting their roster, Mantle and Berra and Whitey Ford, Casey Stengel, their manager. So that became my team. But going to the ballpark for the first time, Actually, the first time I went to Yankee Stadium, I was seven in 1959. I had gone to both Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds in 1957 with my dad. But all I remember about it is the atmospherics. I was five years old last year in New York for both teams. And I remember the atmospherics of it, but I don't remember many particulars. But I do remember particulars of the first game at Yankee Stadium. And the thing that struck me, and I'm not alone in saying this, many baseball fans of roughly my generation have said the same thing. You've either listened to the games on the radio or you've watched them on a flickering black and white TV. And (laughs) now you walk in you walk into the cathedral of baseball, Yankee Stadium. And not only is the stadium itself so impressive, but just the colors emerald green grass, how pearly white the baselines and the batter's box are uh, the sort of burnt ember color, not exactly brown, kind of a burnt ember color uh, of the infield dirt and the warning track, and then the green of the facade. I mean, it's just a rush, kind of a panorama of of colors and sights, and also sounds. Beer here, scorecard, crackerjacks, you know, the whole thing. Uh, The cigar smoke swirling, because that's what it was like in those days, so very much predominantly male crowd Uh, a lot of those guys wore suits to a game or at least white shirts to a game very different uh than what it is now uh and the whole thing was just a tremendous rush it's often been compared people compare it to when you watch the wizard of oz and when she's in kansas it's in black and white then she lands in oz and everything is just a burst of color that's the way it it felt to me i
1: have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore Listening to Bob vividly recall his own childhood trips to the old Yankee Stadium brought me back to my own childhood. Traveling on the 7 train along with my father, heading to Flushing, Queens for the very first time. It was the mid-1970s. And as I lowered one of those wooden orange stadium seats while holding a box of my favorite snack, Milk Duds, I felt a discomforting splinter enter my hand. That quick jab certainly hurt, but it didn't matter. I was thrilled to be at Shea Stadium, the home of the New York Mets. Although I grew up to become a Mets fan, there was one distinct voice that was synonymous in Yankees history. The late public address announcer, Bob Shepard. Now batting
0: for the American League from the New York Yankees, the shortstop number two, Derek Jeter,
1: Number two. And I had the honor and opportunity to interview the voice of God. To this day, I can still remember Mr. Shepard telling me in 2004 that his broadcasting approach was rather simple. And he said, and I quote, I live by the three C's, clear, concise, and correct. I asked Bob Costas about his approach.
0: Well, it varies depending upon the assignment and with regard to Bob Shepard legendary, and justifiably so, as the public address announcer, not only for the Yankees, but for the Giants football games for many years, and a speech instructor at St. John's University, he had to be especially concise, because the idea was to introduce the player, the pinch hitter coming up, or whatever it might be, or in a football game, who carried the ball, who made the tackle, uh, what does that leave it, what down, what distance, so you had to be especially concise. Uh, Preparation is very, very important, no matter what the broadcasting assignment is. If it's an interview, obviously you're preparing for that one person, the story of his or her life, or the issues that they might have been involved in, Um, so you've got to do that. With baseball, for example, calling a baseball game, it's a different thing. Some of the preparation you bring to the booth is the life you've lived in baseball, what you've read, what you've seen, what you recall and the relevant thing might just pop into your head at a given moment. Uh, Then there's the specific preparation that you do for that game, not just each player's stats, but research. What's the history between the teams? uh, What anecdotes are out there when you talk to guys at the batting cage or in the dugout or in the clubhouse? um, What stories are surrounding those teams uh, leading up to that game? All the games that I've done have been network games. I've never been the voice of a local team, so I'm not doing their games day in, day out. Usually, except for the postseason, I'd be doing one game a week. So that actually made it a little bit easier, uh, where I could just take an overview of what that season has been so far to those teams, what's been going on that week, what that pitching pairing is. So it makes it a little bit easier than doing a game every single day. When I was a student at Syracuse University, I used to go to MacArthur Stadium, uh, where the Syracuse Chiefs played. And at that time, they were a Yankee affiliate. So the Yankees played, this was something that teams used to do then, they don't do it much anymore. Uh, they'd play one game to boost the attendance in the minor league park, one game against their AAA affiliate. So the Yankees showed up for a game uh, in the early 1970s against the Syracuse Chiefs. Uh, and I remember, <clears throat> pardon me, interviewing Bobby Mercer, uh, who was a big Yankee star then and and a favorite of mine Uh, and maybe it was lucky for me that I interviewed Bobby because he was such a nice guy and not intimidating smile on his face Uh, he made me feel comfortable is there one particular memorable conversation you had with one of those legends in the booth that you will never forget I remember on the late night program I used to do on NBC that came on after David Letterman in the late 80s and early 90s thanks for staying up later this is the first of two programs with abc's jim mckay the most honored sportscaster in the history of his business jim mckay at that point had retired from doing the olympics and we did a couple of programs with jim and his reflections not only on the big moments he had covered but about his philosophy uh, of covering sports that was very memorable vin scully as well you know you can never miss with vin Harry Carey, tremendously bombastic personality, um, very funny, uh, knew how to work a crowd. So whenever you interviewed Harry, you wanted to make sure there was a crowd there. You didn't want to do it in a studio. Uh, He liked to relate to the people and relate to the fans. Uh, And I'm going to leave somebody out here. Oh, you know, I went to Red Barber's house. I went to Red Barber's house in Tallahassee, Florida in the early 1990s, uh, only a few years before he died. Red probably would be credited with inventing the way modern baseball is called. Now the Dodgers go out to take the field. Bill Postel goes down to coach at first base for Pittsburgh. Goldie Holt down to third. Early baseball announcers in the late 20s, early 30s, they sounded like public address announcers. Red comes along first with the Cincinnati Reds, then with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and puts a narrative to the game, puts kind of a melody uh, to the game. And of course, his protege was Vin Scully, and Vin took it to an even different level. Red was let go by the Yankees following the 1966 season because the Yankees had sunk to 10th place, the once great Yankee dynasty, the bottom fell out, and they they finished last in a 10-team league. And he said some mildly critical things, just recognizing the reality, and the Yankee brass didn't like it. And so he called his last big league game... When he was still in his mid 50s and retired to Tallahassee, Florida. So I went down to Tallahassee uh, and spent a day with him. We had lunch uh, and we had long conversations. And then we taped something for a radio show that I used to do back then called Costas Coast to Coast. And because Red was so seldom heard at length like that, uh, that became something that, that people, at least of that era, appreciated. 2020
1: will forever be remembered within the baseball fraternity for the number of Baseball Hall of Famers that we lost. And sadly, in 2021, we also lost Baseball Hall of Famer Tommy Lasorda, who was actually Clemente's teammate in Montreal, Canada. 2020 was also the 25th anniversary of the passing of Bob's dear friend and childhood idol, Mickey Mantle. So I asked Bob to share some of his favorite memories of the legendary Bronx Bomber.
0: Well, as a player, the single moment I remember best, game three of the 1964 World Series, the Yankees and the Cardinals, series tied 1-1, game tied 1-1. Mantle comes up to lead off in the bottom of the ninth inning against Cardinal reliever Barney Schultz, who throws exactly one pitch. Which Mantle launches into the upper deck at Yankee Stadium for his 16th World Series home run, breaking the record at that point, which he had shared with Babe Ruth. Mantle still holds the record with 18 World Series home runs. That was the first World Series game I ever attended. It was a Saturday afternoon at Yankee Stadium, and guess what? A box seat. A box seat cost for a World Series game at Yankee Stadium in 1964 I still have the ticket 10 bucks close 12 really 12 oh okay a, okay i see a comparable seat now would be hundreds of dollars maybe <laughs> even into the low thousands
1: while discussing his childhood idol the conversation shifted to a Puerto Rican phenom that inspired the Talking 21 podcast Roberto Clemente Walker Bob moderated an MLB network panel celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Pittsburgh Pirates defeating the New York Yankees in the 1960 World Series. In that memorable evening, Bob said to the late Mrs. Vera Clemente that her husband was not only respected and admired, but revered. Powerful words that are not thrown around lightly. So I asked Bob to share some memorable thoughts about that unforgettable night. Bob, tell me your thoughts about that particular evening.
0: Well, David Marinus, uh, who is a great historian, writes about politics, but also has an interest in sports, uh, wrote a biography of Vince Lombardi, uh, wrote a history of the 1960 Rome Olympics, and wrote a biography of Roberto Clemente. And the title of that biography was, as, as you know, the, the Last Hero. He viewed him as, um, as a genuine hero. First of all, as you would know better than I, but I think I appreciate this, he carried himself, and this is a, an important distinction, players of his time could have great style, but still have class and dignity. I think now exhibitionism, which can be obnoxious, Gets confused with style. Clemente oozed style, but at the same time he oozed dignity, and it was very important to him that he be appreciated as a Latin American ballplayer, and that he that he carry himself with dignity that befit the pride that he felt uh, for his heritage. And I recall that after the 1971 World Series in which he starred for the Pirates. Actually, probably his greatest uh, series of games was in October of 71. When he was interviewed after the game, he paused the interview very politely and stopped speaking in English and spoke in Spanish, directed toward his parents and his family and those watching in Puerto Rico and around Latin America. And he insisted, you know this, but perhaps your listeners don't, when he came up, you know, some race, we'd be crazy to say that racism doesn't still exist. But then it was so blatant in so many ways that makes you shake your head. Now, Uh, they referred to him as Bob or Bobby Clemente, because they thought that Roberto would would somehow be off putting to the largely white audience. I can recall baseball cards when I was a kid, that said Bob Clemente. And he insisted always politely, but he insisted, and my name is Roberto Clemente, he was such an idol to so many young Hispanic ballplayers, both in this country and, and around Latin America, that it's just very difficult to overstate his impact and how respected he was, not only for his greatness as a player, but for the way he carried himself and the way he never tried to soft pedal his heritage. And then the way he dies, he's on a mission of mercy Trying to carry needed supplies to earthquake victims in Nicaragua. The plane takes off in Puerto Rico. It's overloaded. It might have had mechanical problems. It dives into the Atlantic Ocean. His body is never recovered. So, and I don't mean this glibly, but like others, like James Dean or Marilyn Monroe, when someone dies young and we never see them age, then they are young and beautiful and in the prime of their lives in our imagination. And that, along with the true heroism and selflessness of what he was doing when he died, elevates him even further. And just to finish this up, and I apologize for going on at such length, but that night, that night in Pittsburgh that you were referring to, it struck me because he didn't have a particularly good game. In fact, he had a bobble in right field. He had a good series overall, but he was not that much of a factor in that seventh game. But every time he came on camera, walking from the on-deck circle to the plate, catching a routine fly ball, whatever it was, the audience reacted viscerally to seeing Roberto Clemente, uh, which to me said, said it all. He just stood out from every other player. And there were a lot of other good players on that Pirate team, but he stood out.
1: There are some Clemente aficionados that have uh, listened to uh, the entire season one that Clemente admired JFK's uh, Peace Corps. He did meet Martin Luther King, Roberto, that is in uh, 1962 in Puerto Rico. Roberto had a farm. He actually had a restaurant and both Roberto and Martin Luther King. Now imagine that sit down in 1962. But in 1968, Clemente stated that the pirates would not play the Astros out of respect to Dr. King, who was assassinated a few days prior. So here it is, a black Puerto Rican standing up for a Black man who was violently murdered. So baseball and activism, Bob, it's just something that at this point until really that I believe, if you want to go back to Curt Flood, that's something else where Curt Flood was fighting for everyone, but baseball and activism, Bob, I'd love to hear your thoughts.
0: Well, baseball has not been as prominent in that respect as other sports have. But there have been individuals, there have been moments, and of course, Jackie Robinson by his mere presence, and then Jackie was a very well-informed and active citizen beyond that. He always kept up pressure on the larger society to live up to its promises and its ideals. So you have Jackie, uh, you have Kurt Flood, Uh, as you mentioned, you have Roberto Clemente in a different way, and there are others disproportionately, not exclusively, but disproportionately, the athletes through history who have been active politically have been active, have been athletes of color, which should not be surprising because through much of history, it's a bit better now, but through much of history, sports and entertainment were the most prominent positions where people of color could have a platform and have a voice uh, that the larger portion of America would pay some attention to. And because they had lived through a different reality uh, than their white fellow citizens, they had a different perspective and perhaps felt a different calling to address those issues. So as I say, uh, were there there and have there been, including in the present day, uh, some white athletes across sports uh, who have been politically active? Yes, but predominantly it's been athletes of color.
1: You had an opportunity to see Clemente play, I'm sure, at the Polo Grounds, maybe briefly, but you mentioned that earlier that um, quite possibly maybe that wasn't the case, but maybe at Shea Stadium. But I'd like to ask you, what are your recollections of that entire, so let's now step in, step Clemente to the side, the entire Pirates team, considering they are the same organization that 50 years ago Basically, fielded an entire lineup of black and Afro-Latino players.
0: Yes, they did. Um, in and when you think about the 1979 Pirates, uh, the "We Are Family" Pirates, uh, that had a distinct uh, African American and Hispanic flavor to it. Willie Stargell, by then, was kind of the godfather of that team. Uh, Willie Willie's career overlapped Roberto's as well. And and Willie always spoke uh, with great appreciation of Roberto Clemente. Uh, Yeah, the pirates have that uh, as part of their history. And I can recall this. I was in St. Louis then. I came to St. Louis right out of college. Um, Before winding up at NBC, I did a lot of radio work in St. Louis. In the late seventies and early eighties, you saw a lot of young black kids, with pirate caps on not just in Pittsburgh but around the country I'd yeah. see them in St. Louis I remember the pirates then had very distinctive caps with like the yes. the kind of circular uh yellow or gold going around uh, the, the the top of the cap um so it was very very add some star.
1: and some star, stars there as well Bob
0: that's right and um Sister Sledge had the we are family hit and they became kind the the theme song of the Pirates. Uh, and they're a, a bit like a bit like Georgetown basketball in the 1980s with John Thompson as their coach and an almost entirely black roster. and they went to the final four uh, at least twice, maybe no, three times. they went to the final four three times in a four- year stretch. And there's no question that it wasn't just Georgetown fans that around the country, they were black America's team. And I think that even in cities where there was a major league franchise, the pirates of that era, there was something about them, not just the makeup of their team, but kind of the, the spirit of, of the team um, that that made them appealing, not just to pirate fans. And, and I saw that. I, I saw kids you know, walking around, black kids, Hispanic kids, wearing pirates hats. And I wasn't in Pittsburgh. So it must have meant something. You know, since 1973, when the Commissioner's Award
1: was renamed the Roberto Clemente Award, the list of players receiving this prestigious honor is definitely a who's who in the history of this game. But there's a recipient, this year's recipient, actually, is a friend of yours, Adam Wainwright. Please, Bob, if you can, anything that you can share with our listeners uh, about that selection because he's he's a special guy Uh, to definitely be able to recognize his philanthropic
0: efforts. And he is sincere with it. He really does the work. He doesn't just make the occasional appearance. He rolls up his sleeves and he does the work. uh, A number of charities. Uh, Having spent a lot of time in St. Louis, it's kind of my adopted hometown, sports has something to do with this because the Cardinals especially, but also the Blues and other teams are so central to the city's sense of itself. There's always been a tremendous connection between the Cardinals and community efforts in St. Louis. Since the inception of the Roberto Clemente Award, more Cardinals have won the award than any other team. Six six Cardinals have won the award, including two of the last three years, because two or three years ago, Yadier Molina won it. Um, And I can tell you this, that players have a great deal of respect for the Roberto Clemente Award. It may not be as publicized as someone winning the MVP or whatever, but it has tremendous meaning within baseball. And those who have won it or have been nominated for it, Ozzie Smith uh, is another who has won the Clemente Award, great St. Louis ballplayer. This has real standing. Albert Pujols, this has real standing uh, within baseball. Um, Wainwright is very, very, when when I heard that he won it the same day I heard it, I texted him um, and congratulated him. Um, And I've had players say to me, uh, you know, you, you list kind of their accolades. And one of the things that they'll mention if they've won it, you know, having won the Clemente Award, that that means a lot to me. So, yeah, there you go. I asked
1: the hypothetical question I've asked all our Talking 21 guests. If you had the opportunity to sit down with Commissioner Manfred on the topic of retiring Roberto's number throughout the league, what would you say to him? I asked Bob if he was in favor of retiring 21
0: or should Jackie's
1: number stand alone?
0: Oh, well, I think he could make a very strong case, especially because of the way he died, uh, what he symbolizes, and the fact that the game has a very, very strong Hispanic influence now. The number of African American players, for a variety of reasons, uh, has diminished over the years. It's in single digits percentage-wise, but the number of players of color in baseball has never been higher, and that's because of a very large number of Hispanic players. That's a huge talent pool, um, and I think it would be appropriate for Roberto Clemente, as a symbol of that, uh, to have his number have his number retired. Now, of course, at some point, you have to draw the line because you can't say that every admirable or significant player has to have his number retired around baseball. You run out of numbers eventually, as the Yankees have run out of numbers. The Yankees have no single-digit numbers left. But, yeah, I mean, Clemente's in a class of his own. As you know, know, Danny, uh, there is a Studio 21 um, at the MLB Network, named for Roberto Clemente, Studio 42 for Jackie Robinson, and Studio 3 for Babe Ruth. And then I suggested uh, for my personal studio during the COVID quarantine, where I do so much stuff from home, I suggested that I have studio 24-7 with Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle. Cool idea. Indicating that, indicating that I'm available 24-7 uh, if they wanna call on me. So that they made a terrific backdrop for me uh, with Willie on one side and and Mickey on the other. So between studio 24-7 with Willie and Mickey, three for Babe, 42 for Jackie and 21 for Roberto. I think we've connected all the dots.
1: Well, Bob, let me tell you, this was an absolute thrill. I really, really appreciate it, whether it was providing those uh, and we've communicated since 2013, because I've looked at the emails when I asked you to help me out with a story for Memories and Dreams. You came to the show, you provided uh, information for that program. Um, And once again, now to have you on Talking 21, Bob Costas, thank you so very much. All blessings to your family and for just being who you are, Bob, because every time I get a chance to see you on MLB Network, I make sure to tune in, kick the feet up, and just uh, enjoy anything that you wish to share with the baseball community. So, Bob, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Danny. Thank you for having
0: me on. Good to talk with you again. And happy virtual New Year. Fingers crossed that things return to normal sometime soon to kick off the
1: 2021 baseball season with the Hall of Fame broadcaster who has followed in the footsteps of some of the greatest voices in the game. We'll make this inaugural episode a must listen for our dedicated followers. Next up on our Talking 21 podcast, and we're proudly welcoming Pittsburgh Pirates manager, Derek Shelton. He will share his rather interesting path to the majors the 2021 Buckos, and of course, his connection to the legendary Pirates, Right Fielder. Episode one is in the books. And if you enjoyed our podcast with Bob Costas, please be sure to immediately subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talking21Podcast. And yes... We're also on Facebook and YouTube. So keep listening for all of the latest information about our episode drops. A special thank you to our co-writer, executive producer, Ras Guevara, and to our social media manager, Senor Beso. And mil gracias, thank you to Tito Rodriguez Jr. who provided our musical arrangement for the Talking 21 season two. And lastly, we tip our cap to our graphic designer extraordinaire, Todd Radom, who designed our podcast logo. Tune in next time for our continued conversation about the great one. This is your host, Danny Torres, and be sure to follow me on Twitter at DannyT21.